We are in Isaiah chapter 30. And in Isaiah 29, we were talking about uh, the process of exile. And what we're going to talk about here in 30 is God talking to Judah about the prospect of going down to Egypt to get some strategic support. So Isaiah 30. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out plans, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not with my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. So this is in the context of the Assyrian invasion. And one of the things that Judah tries is to make an alliance with Egypt for military protection. The problem is, by this time, Egypt has sort of faded from the world scene as a strategic power. And in fact, the Assyrians and the Babylonians will both, for a time, occupy Egypt. So they are not going to be the protection or the ally that Judah had hoped for. And of course, God is grumpy about it. The other thing is, when we were in earlier chapters in Isaiah, just to sort of refresh you on the history, the Assyrians came down and destroyed and took into exile the northern kingdom. And they also put the southern kingdom under vassalage, and they tried to take Jerusalem. And Hezekiah, in fact, paid tribute to the Assyrians, but they attacked him anyway. And Hezekiah put on sackcloth and ashes, and Isaiah came in and talked to him and and bucked him up. And that's the place where God destroys the Assyrian army. 185,000 of them die overnight. So the context here is, hey, Judah, what are you doing going down to Egypt looking for help? What you really want to do is depend on God. And of course, God is going to deliver Judah. But in the meantime, he's not pleased with them. So verse 3, Therefore, shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation? For though his officials are in Zon, and his envoys reach Hanes, through a people that cannot profit them, that brings them neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. As I was reading this, nobody knows where this place Hanes is. Zon is in Egypt. Hanes, according to the commentary I read, A, nobody knows where it is, but B, they were speculating it might be one of the cities in Egypt, which is entirely possible. Or the thing I flashed on as I read it was, oh, well, maybe that's an emissary to some foreign power, and Israel thinks, wow, Egypt is really a player because they've got embassies all over the region, that kind of thing. I'm saying that without any historical backup whatsoever. So verse 6, an oracle on the beasts of the Negev, through a land of trouble and anguish, from where comes the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent, They carry their riches on the backs of donkeys, their treasures on the humps of camels, to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty, therefore I have called her Rahab who sits still. Israel, in order to send emissaries to Egypt, has to go through the Negev. 
that Nagab is in between Jerusalem and Egypt, right? So what's happening is Israel is carrying bribes, for lack of a better term, on the backs of donkeys and on the humps of camels. And they are undertaking a perilous journey across the Negev. And the Negev, in parentheses, has got lionesses and lions and snakes and flying fiery serpents. So what this is saying is you guys are undertaking this perilous journey with a lot of treasure on your donkeys and your camels for purposes of influencing the Egyptians to become your allies, and it's all a waste of time. In other words, you could have saved yourself the dangerous journey for all the good this is going to do you. Again, verse 7, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still. According to the commentary I read, this Rahab is not the harlot of Jericho. Same name, different reference. This Rahab is a mythological sea creature that apparently shows up in pagan worship in that area. And last time or the time before, he was talking about Leviathan, the great sea serpent that he was going to tame. And we talked about that in terms of worldwide mythology. The idea of a serpent that circles the earth and the sea shows up in a number of pagan cultures. The one I happen to know about is Norse culture, which is the Midgard serpent. It's also called the worm Ouroboros, which is a snake that's swallowing its own tail. So this Rahab reference here is, according to the commentary I read, sort of in the same vein as that. The idea that you have a serpent in the Nile, if you will, or a mythical creature in the Nile, and God is calling that mythical creature worthless, which is to say Egypt, who is symbolized in this passage by that, is also worthless. So now we're down to verse 8. And now, go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. I have talked about this ad nauseum about the relationship between prophecy and exile, where God sends a prophet, tells Israel to repent, and as I've said, the prophets that make it into the book, Israel doesn't heed. So what happens is the prophet continues to speak, but he speaks in parables so they won't understand. And what God is saying here is, all right, I want you to write this in the book, so that when they go into exile, they will be able to read it and know what happened to them. Verse 9, For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right, speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Now, you remember we just finished chapter 29. And the process of exile was that he blinded them, which is he took their seers away, and he stopped their ears, which means he took their prophets away, and he closed the book. So you need to read this in the context of chapter 29. Same metaphor. So what's happening is... God is sending a prophet, in this case Isaiah, 
And what they are saying to the prophet is, we don't want to hear what you have to say. We instead want to hear smooth, easy things. Easy listening prophecy is what we're looking for here. I'm reading Kings right now in my normal Bible reading. And one of the things that happens is Ahab and Jehoshaphat form a temporary alliance in order to throw out the Assyrians. And Jehoshaphat says to Ahab, all right, get some prophets in here and have them tell us how the battle's going to go. And Ahab hauls in his staff prophets and they all say, oh, go up, O king, you're going to prevail. And Jehoshaphat says, is that the only prophets you got? He says, well, there's this other guy, but he never says anything I like, so I don't listen to him. So Jehoshaphat says, well, go get him. So they go get this guy, and the, and the guy is reluctant to come because as soon as he gets in there, all the other prophets gang up on him and say, all right, you watch what you say. You make sure that you give the king a good prophecy. And, of course, this guy prophesies that the king's going to die in the battle and it's all just going to go to heck, which is, of course, what happens. So the idea here that you have flocks of prophets floating around Israel on the staff, all that kind of stuff, and people pick and choose which prophets they want to listen to based on what they got to say, which, by the way, sounds like politicians. We pick and choose who we want to listen to based on who says something we want to hear. Now, the other thing that's going on in here is in addition to picking and choosing prophets and telling the seers who should be the wise men who is going to look at them and say, what do you got, cornflakes for brains? You don't want to do something like that. Just in the human realm, what you're planning to do is stupid, much less in the realm of prophecy that sees into the supernatural. And so they don't want to hear either one. Now, Israel goes into exile because of idolatry. Judah goes into also because of idolatry, but about 100 years later. This is genealogy and a guess. I got no scripture to back this up whatsoever. However, as we've been reading through Isaiah here, what we see is that the prophet sort of is an equal opportunity flayer. He takes a stripe off of Israel and then he turns around and takes a similar stripe off of Judah. And as you read back and forth, you say, how come Israel is going into exile and Judah's not? You understand my perspective here? This is where the genealogy comes in. Israel started going into exile with the Assyrian invasion and the destruction of Israel. I suspect that one of the reasons that it was 100 years later before Judah goes into exile is because the instrument that God used to enforce exile, which is the Assyrians, made it a state policy when they conquered somebody to take and uproot the people and scatter them so that they could no longer be cohesive. In other words, you separate them from the land that they grew up on and then you scatter them so that they lose all their traditions. Therefore, you have a docile population and then you take somebody from some other place and put them on the land that's just been vacated. So the whole idea as a state policy is to set things up so that conquered people don't rebel. 
Well, the consequence of that policy is Israel, the northern tribes, have essentially been lost to history. They're gone. The problem with that from God's perspective is he still wants the Messiah. And in order to get the Messiah to come in, you have to have a coherent Israel. It is going to wind up just being Judah. But Judah, after the return from Babylon, if you will, becomes Israel. Air quotes around it. We all understand that it is not Israel complete, but from the world's perspective, it is Israel. So if we look at the history, what happens is the northern kingdom, Israel, is gone, dispersed, and scattered. The southern kingdom remains as a cohesive people. They get conquered a hundred some odd years later by the Babylonians. The Babylonian policy was different than the Assyrian policy. So what the Babylonians did is scooped them all up and took them into exile in Babylon, but they remained a cohesive people, as they did in Egypt. And then at the end of the exile, they came back into the land. They come back into the land, and the Messiah is then born to Israel. And again, with air quotes around Israel, because it is not the complete nation, but as far as the world is concerned, it is Israel. So they come back from Babylon, the Messiah is born, and then 40 years later, they turn around and they're shipped back out into exile. And so what I'm suggesting to you is several things. Thing one is that the exile of Israel started with the nation of Israel. It proceeded in stages but it was always going to be the entire nation into exile. The business with the southern kingdom, Judah, Babylon, return Judah, and then exile again is entirely an artifact that God needed Jewish Hebrew people in Israel for a time in order for the Messiah to come into the world. Once that was accomplished, back into exile. So what I'm saying to you is exile has never really ended until perhaps 1948. And understand, a lot of that is Johnnyology. It is not thus saith the Lord. God hasn't laid that out in his plan of scripture that he has revealed to us. I'm simply looking at the historical events and looking what happened in the theology and how that all worked bouncing that against the fact that Isaiah is every bit as hard on the southern kingdom as he is on the northern kingdom, yet they do not get taken into exile. And in fact, God goes to great pains to preserve them as a nation, destroying the Assyrian army and some other stuff instead of letting them go into exile. And I'm speculating that the reason for that is he needed a coherent Israelite nation for prophetic and messianic purposes. And if I were to carry my speculation further, which I will, if the pattern I have just described is correct, and if I didn't think it was correct, I wouldn't have said it. But as I say, I have no authority for it other than just looking at the pattern. When Israel came back into the land after the Babylonian exile, it was for the purpose of having a messianic event. The Messiah was born. Israel is now back in the land, but the two sticks are not yet reunited. 
So I am speculating that God is preparing for yet another messianic event. Now, one other thing. I'm talking about the attractiveness of paganism. And what we see here, and we see it in the United States too, the problem from a human perspective with God's laws is it denies so many things that we think are fun, mostly sexual. And God is pretty stringent on who you may fool around with and who you may not fool around with and under which circumstances you may do so. And we have an entire society and most societies in human history are built around the idea that sex is really fun. And the more you do, the better. And with the more people you do it, the better and all that kind of stuff. So as a nation, especially Israel and the United States as well, declines from its founding, which is based on God says we ought to do things this way. Israel was set up on that basis, as was the United States set up on that basis. And as we drift farther and farther from our founding, you have more and more people who are more attracted to unauthorized sex of various forms, and with that attraction comes a spurning of Scripture. And so what Judah is saying here is, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. So you have in the church right now, all these churches with rainbow flags out in front of them. Oh, we just love everybody. We're open and affirming. God loves us all. God made us all. These are smooth illusions. And the nice thing from a human perspective about paganism is paganism doesn't even pretend. Paganism just says, go for it. And furthermore, if you want a hot time in the old town tonight, show up at the temple. Because we've got everything that you could possibly want. Boys, girls, sheep, goats, whatever you like, we've got it. So the nice thing about paganism is you don't have this nagging guilt in the back of your mind that you really know God says you shouldn't do that. But we've got smooth illusions. We have pastors that are telling us it's okay, you were made that way. But even with pastors saying that, people who know the word of God have this nagging feeling in the back of their mind that there is something wrong, this nagging feeling of guilt, which they would really rather not have. And what they find is that their smooth-talking pastor is insufficiently authoritative to completely remove that nagging little feel of guilt, which is why if we just throw the whole thing over and go to paganism, we're okay, because that guilt doesn't even exist in paganism. That's what Isaiah is talking about here. Verse 12, Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach at a high wall bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel, 
It is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip water out of the cistern. I am an engineer. Specifically, at one time in my life, I've been a structural engineer. And what he is describing here is a phenomenon that is well known to structural engineers. You get a concrete column. It stands there and it doesn't move and it stands there and it stands there and it stands there until all of a sudden it just explodes for no apparent reason. And what's happened is the load on it has become so great that it can't hold it anymore. But concrete is not like steel. So when you load steel, it bends. And you can see it bend and you can have some inkling that something bad is going to happen. That is not the case with a column, actually, either steel or concrete. What happens with a column is it stands there and stands there and stands there, and all of a sudden it buckles. And instead of like a beam, it just sort of sags. This buckles out of the way and everything drops. Or if it's made out of concrete, the concrete explodes and spalls in all directions. That's what he's describing here. Everything looks fine, looks good. Wall is holding. Everything's cool. All of a sudden, bang, it's gone. The thing he's describing here is that the destruction will be so complete, so devastating, and so fast that it will be like breaking a clay pot into so many pieces that there isn't even enough to scoop up a little water with. So it describes pretty complete destruction. Verse 15. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away, and we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. By the way, this should remind you of Deuteronomy 28. Remember in Deuteronomy 28, I don't remember the exact ratio, but a ten shall taste a thousand kind of a thing. So he's clearly evoking Deuteronomy 28 here. The point here is the proportion is reversed from Deuteronomy instead of the blessing of the Lord where a thousand of your enemies flee before one of you, now you have a thousand of you fleeing before one of them. So the the proportion is the same, it's just that the direction of flight is reversed. The other thing is, up at the beginning of 15, it says, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. And that, in fact, turns out to be the case. Because when the Assyrians are besieging Judah, Hezekiah puts on sackcloth and ashes, and Isaiah comes in and settles him down. And in rest and in peace and in trusting in the Lord, the city is delivered because God supernaturally kills 185,000 of them overnight. So what he's referring to in this verse 15 is do all the thrashing around you want, try and make as many alliances as you want, get the fastest horses you can get, but none of that's going to do you any good. The only thing that's going to do you any good is to rest and trust in the Lord. 
verse 18 maybe. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. And again, I just mentioned that that is in fact going to be the thing that saves Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 19. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes will see your teacher. Not sure whether we're talking about Yeshua here or we are talking about the deliverance of Jerusalem under Hezekiah. Not sure. 21. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. That seems to me to be speaking of the Holy Spirit. So in that understanding, we're talking about after Pentecost. And the idea here is that the Holy Spirit is your guide. And as you veer to the left hand or the right hand, he nudges you back into the straight path. I think that's the sense of that. Verse 22. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. So the idea again here is that at that time, Israel will give up idolatry. Verse 23. And he will give rain to the seed with which you sow the ground and bread the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures, and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed and with a shovel and a fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Not sure when the day of the great slaughter, when the towers fall, is. Could be Armageddon. Could be during the thousand-year reign. Because remember, when Yeshua comes back, there is a considerable amount of destruction. So not sure just exactly what we're talking about here. But clearly, Israel is under the protection and in the good graces of the Lord at that point. Verse 26. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold, as the light of seven days, in the darkness when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. I am assuming we are not talking about a sevenfold actual jacking up of the sun. That would hurt. What I'm talking about, I think here, is as in the New Jerusalem, where you don't need street lights because... The Lord is the light in the city. I think we're talking in that metaphor. And the seven times is hyperbolic, which is to say, as in the New Jerusalem, we don't need street lights because the light of the Lord is in the place. I think it's that kind of a metaphor, a complete light. And seven is, of course, complete. So you have complete light, if you will. Or perfect light is perhaps a better way to describe it. And, of course... The people are healed. 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger 
and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury, and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the people a bridle that leads astray. I am thinking that this probably is talking about thousand-year reign, not new heaven and new earth, because during the thousand-year reign, at the end of that period, Satan is turned loose and he is able to deceive the nations that they would come up against Israel. Okay? And what is obviously being said here is God isn't going to put up with it. And this last phrase, I'm not sure what it means, but I will speculate. Verse 28, his breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with a sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. So the idea here of a bridle that leads astray feels to me like Satan being released at the end of the thousand-year reign, and Satan at that point will in fact lead the nations astray. So in that sense, he becomes a false bridle, if you will. 29. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept, and gladness of heart as when one sets out to the sound of a flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. The Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm of hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. So this apparently is again back at the siege of Jerusalem when he strikes the Assyrian army. So the Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. In other words, he is going to beat them to the tune of a brass band. Sort of gives you the image of somebody enjoying his work. 32 again. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. Battling with brandished arm, he will fight with them. For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king is made ready. Its pyre made deep and wide, with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. And again, I am assuming that that's Sennacherib, who is the king of Assyria. He's the one that lost the army in front of Jerusalem, and he winds up being murdered by his own two sons in Nineveh. So I'm assuming that's what we're talking about.